Greetings, ladies and mentalgents, and welcome to this weekly edition of Tales from Outer Space, which will include all the YouTube videos released over the week for Tales from Outer Space, including TFOS 800 to 814. And, as always, I hope that you enjoy. Tales from Outer Space 800 Story number one Humans are weird Wheelbarrows, written by Betty Adams. The light was beginning to shift down into the soft, mid-range oranges of evening by the time the mound of dirt was anywhere near flat. Third sister shook out her frill in an attempt to dislodge the dust and grime that had collected there. She resisted the urge to lick off the particularly clingy bit of dirt in public and tried to focus on how the rest of the crew was coming along. The flight of Winged was circling at the dig site taking readings. They were clearly fragging, however. Only half of the flight members were maintaining the suggested elevation, and the rest were exposing their teeth in a way that suggested that they were about to forfeit their natural herbivore natures to start biting chunks out of the humans. The humans were too beginning to lag. Despite sensibly traveling along the ground, they had been moving large amounts of dirt with nothing but simple levers and wheels that seemed to make up the base tool set of every network of humans, no matter what their state of profession was. Third sister, Seventeen Trills fluttered over to her side and hovered there, not looking directly at her. Third sister was well aware that their sensory horns gave them essentially full circle awareness that was more accurate than simple sight, but she still couldn't help feeling a prickle of annoyance at apparently being ignored, even as he requested her attention. She clicked a response in mother out of irritation. At least the pesky little halbats could hear a reasonable range of sound. I think it might be time to rest our wings, Seventeen Trolls observed. I too have noticed that the extended physical labor has affected flight efficiency, she noted, I agree with your judgment. He snapped, her beady black eyes around at her. Oh, it's not us I'm concerned about, he said. It's the humans. Why do you think that? Third sister asked, suddenly, genuinely curious. Ever since their first interactions with the winged had integrated the humans into their mythos as paragons of physical strength. She could not count the number of problems that arose medically, because some winged commander believed his human to be near indestructible. Other humans were oddly loath to dissuade this idea. While the commander as inexperienced as seventeen trills to recognize human frailty in any form was something worth noting. However, he seemed reluctant to speak. Another oddity that. He finally just gestured for her to follow with him and the winged hook and led her around the corner of the structure that they were erecting. She saw what he was observing immediately. One of the larger humans, a third brother, if she remembered correctly, was stopped dead in his tracks with a single-wheeled mass transporter full of dirt and detritus blocking the main path. His head was tilted to the side, and he was staring down at the handles of the device with a fascinated expression on his face. More importantly, his skin was splashed with a pulsing of vessels trying to expel the excess mammalian heat from his body. His skin was venting copious amounts of water in an effort to evaporate away the energy. 
Third brother, she asked carefully as she approached him. Are you well? To her growing concern, he didn't respond. Ranger, Seventeen Trill snapped out. What are you looking at? The human responded to that by raising his eyes to them. However, the twin points didn't focus on either of them. Isn't it amazing? He asked in a hushed tone. Isn't what amazing? Third sister asked. The material sciences have advanced. Third brother said with a slow words. But the basic design of a wheelbarrow has not changed in a thousand years. His gaze drifted over the past Ophrel before focusing on what the humans called the middle distance. Thousands, he whispered, using only his breath to enunciate the sounds in a hushed awe. This is the same thing that our ancestors might have used thousands of years ago. Ophrel snapped Bridget with concern and third sister carefully moved forward to touch the hot skin of the human's arm. Seventeen trolls rattled around her, giving her little distressed chirps of confusion. Do you need a nap? Third brother. Third sister asked in the softest tone her voice was capable of producing. He slowly swiveled his head to face her and blinked. I think, uh, he said carefully, I think, uh, maybe, yes. Seventeen trolls, third sister called, Call an end to the workday, and please have the least tired of your wing to escort the humans home. The human in front of them lifted the wheelbarrow handles and began pushing towards the transport, before stopping and looking back at them in wonder in his eyes. I didn't, he began. I mean, I never experimented as much as a kid, you know. Is this what it's like to be high? Third sister stared at him in bewilderment until he smiled and started back up the bar. End of story. Story number two. Taking the gloves off. Written by Digital 332006. Draken took heavy breaths, having trouble standing upright. His opponent fared no better. Knelt down on one knee with a fine mist of blood spraying out of his mouth as he coughed. Draken put one of his four hands on the left of his chest beating the bruised spot his enemies had created with his attacks. It would take a few months to heal, but he would recover. The bipedal mammal in front of him stood up, wiping the blood from his mouth with his right hand. It was the strongest opponent he'd fought in so far in his life. The arena champion certainly stood up to its reputation. It was a worthy battle, but now it is time for the winner to emerge, boasted Draken to his weary opponent. The creature limped forward, its leg damaged from earlier in the fight. Draken admired its bravery, fighting to the end like this. He also wondered how it could fight so well with just two legs, compared to his four. All right. It's time to take off the gloves, replied the human. <laughs> I don't understand the saying, but it's indeed time. Time to end this. Draken began making his way towards the enemy as well. The Grand Master took a small blue object from his pocket and swatted. Drugs! Far too late for that. Doesn't matter if I'm stronger, faster, and tougher than you. Draken bragged. His opponent chuckled. You'd be surprised. 
Do you know anything about human biology? Why would I learn about such things? Might makes right, Kraken shouted loudly, the crowd cheering him on. This was the most intense fight they'd witnessed this year, and it looked like it might be the crowning of a new champion. Do you feel pain, Draken, when I hit you, for example? asked the human. Ah, of course not. Such thing would be a weakness. Draken spat on the ground in front of him. The human continued. Well, I do. Every time you hit me, it felt painful. When you twisted my leg, it felt like my whole body was on fire. It's not fun, let me tell you. Do you ever consider how hard to hit when you're swinging? How much power to put behind your attack? It should stop because it might land badly. Ever! I always go full out. Anything less would be shameful. Draken tapped his chest with all four of his arms. Well, I have to. Not only can it hurt when I get hit, but also when I hit your carapace. I even have to be careful not to break a limber. There is this lovely little thing in my brain called amygdala. It reacts to fear, but I've been conditioned to ignore fear as part of my training. When the amygdala is overwhelmed with fear, it does a few things, like releases endorphins and adrenaline. Another one of these effects can be something called hysterical strength which occurs when in a life-or-death situation. Mothers have been able to fight or bet. Children have lifted cars, and various underwhelming people have accomplished other ridiculous feats such as those. There are downsides to this. Muscle can tear right off your bone. Exhaustion can also cause the body to shut down or suffer other types of permanent debilitating injuries. The Grand Master shook his head and cracked his neck. Your brain really has to believe that you're gonna die, though. This is what that pill was for. It's not making me stronger. It takes off the restraints that I've had on. Honestly, I don't like losing control. But I like losing even less. Like I said, it's time to take off the gloves. The human's expression started changing, a twitch occurring in its eyes as they turned crazed. The human launched itself at him, frothing at the mouth and with no care for its own safety, leaving himself open to attack. Draken used the opportunity to strike the human's right side, scoring a solid hit, but his opponent never faltered, aiming at his face. With a savagery, the human clawed at Draken's eyes, digging deep inside of them with the fingers and nails, eliciting screams from the Xeno as he lost vision in his right eye. The Grand Master followed up by biting down on his neck, grinding his teeth against the hard chitin of the carapace until it cracked. It sacrificed its own teeth in the process, some of them falling out of its mouth. The reckless onslaught continued, with kicks and then a lunge, pushing Draken down on the ground before straddling him and bashing against his chest with both arms, holding them together as a hammer. With every strike, the human's hands came back more bloody and with less skin, but he still kept at it. Finally, with a crunch, Draken's carapace gave away and the human wasted no time. Plunging his hand into the fleshy underneath, 
tearing at his heart. For a brief moment, Draken looked on through his badly damaged left eye as the human raised his heart to the crowd as they cheered and took a bite out of his still beating heart, spreading the mouthful back on the ground. In the end, Draken smiled. What better deaths could he have achieved? End of story. Tales from Outer Space 801 Story number one. Heaven, like hell, has a special place reserved. In heaven, it is for the dutiful, those who knowingly doom themselves to save many others. Written by Ack1308. Mom, do robots have souls? Henry, in the driver's seat, heard a young Master Adrian's question, but did not answer for three reasons. First, the query had been addressed to Mrs. Miriam Hambolt, or, as Henry referred to her, Mab. Second, as the subject of the question, a household entertainment nurturing robot, Mark One, or H-E-N-R-1. Any opinion he held on the matter would be invariably biased. Third, he had encountered the notion of the soul in his perusal of the popular culture. He had yet to come to a satisfactory analysis of what one was, or how they would be measured or detected. The one thing he did not doubt was for the fact of their existence. Too many authoritative works contained references to them for the notion to be a false one. That's a funny question, ma'am, replied, a deflection that Henry assigned a 78% probability of being based around the wish not to be pinned down to a definitive answer. Where did that come from? Henry raised the percentage to 89%. While continuing to monitor the performance of the auto-drive car and the traffic reports from the upcoming five miles of superhighway and the training half-mile, his hands were motionless on his lap. But should the car's performance vary too far from acceptable safety standards, he would be able to be in the ideal position to resume control of the vehicle. In a mandated safety drills, he had performed within specs, gaining control of an artificially malfunctioning ground car in 3.74 seconds. Pastor Balls was saying that when good people get old and die, like great-grandma did, their souls go to heaven. Master Adrian looked across at Ma'am. I asked him if robots like Henry do that when they'd get all worn out, and he said robots don't have souls, so they can't go to heaven. His voice became thick, as if recalling an emotional moment. I told him Henry's better than anyone else I know. Honey, you do know Henry's semi-Asimov design, don't you? Ma'am's voice was soft and full of warmth. Henry assigned a 91% probability of wishing to reduce emotional trauma. His programming says that he has to be good. This was only partly true. Though Henry refrained from correcting Ma'am's statement so as to avoid undermining her effort to ease Master Adrian's unhappiness. Early on in the days of robot design, attempts had been made to create classic Asimov style robots, complete with the three laws as written. It was a disaster. If the robots could perceive the limitations under which they labored, they spent every active hour figuring out ways to get around them all went insane trying to calculate the probability of their actions harming humans via knock-on effects. Whereas, if they were unaware of them, 
they quickly became useless as their motivations kept hitting the laws and bouncing off of them. So they went and watered down the version, jokingly called the three suggestions. Robots could protect humans, if they wanted to. They could obey humans, if it suited them. And they could protect themselves, if they wanted to keep functioning. All three suggestions were equally weighted, with a slight general urge to do good. Thus, Henry chose to serve the Humboldt family in a way that he did, not because of ownership or programming, because it was what he wanted. The auto-drive car, on the other hand, was neither self-aware nor smart enough that it could make a judgment call about anything. Possessed of no needs at once, it was truly ruled by its programming. Which was a problem, because unlike Henry, the auto-drive car was tied in thoroughly with the traffic net, and just up ahead, a couple of teenage hackers had managed to crack the traffic management codes. They didn't mean any real harm. The virus they had crafted was intended to take over the automated billboards and display rude messages to the morning traffic. Which, if that had been all that happened, would have earned them a slap on the wrist and possibly a job offer. But they screwed up the code, and so when the virus hit the traffic net, it went haywire. Worse, it began replicating up and down the superhighway. Yeah, but, began Master Adrian, he was clearly unwilling to contradict his mother, but Henry was no longer analyzing speech patterns. His entire attention was focused on the fact of the corrupted traffic net was causing vehicles to change speeds and headings in random and thoroughly unsafe manner, and that corruption was spreading. Ma'am, Master Adrian, he said in a crisp tone, entirely unlike his usual differential murmur, strap in immediately, emergency. As he spoke, he took hold of the wheel and placed his feet on the panels. It was not a moment too soon. The rampaging virus attempted to retract the wheel into the dash, but Henry's servo motors were more powerful than the retraction mechanism. And when he activated his emergency use only inductance interface, he took control of the car. The virus fought him, of course, but he was far more capable and managed to force it from the car's system before it could prick the steering or force the backup battery to detonate. In the 2.4 seconds it took him to do this, he had to swerve around three other vehicles intending on ramming him off the road. The rotary wing tow truck was overhead, and he sent an emergency evacuation signal to it, as it swooped down over the car. He retracted the roof and remotely unfastened the clamps on the rear seats. Graspers swung down and delicately latched onto the seat, lifting it from the car. Henry, what are you doing? shouted ma'am. What I must, ma'am, he replied. No, shouted Master Adrian as the seat began to lift away. Go back, you forgot Henry. There were many things Henry wanted to say, but there wasn't time. He uploaded his personal file of the best of times that he had spent with Master Adrian to the young master's private social message inbox. Then he addressed all of his attention to the virus. Automated systems were attempting to combat the virus, but they were failing. Even as vehicles swerved and accelerated and braked in a continuous attempt to destroy him, he sent his signal awareness out through the net, refining and applying the antiviral code to the affected region. 
He drove like a mad genius on speed, scraping through one near collision after another, while he worked at unraveling what had been done. And then, all that was left was the original virus. He knew what he had to do. In order to go that original program, he had to have a solid connection. He couldn't take either hand off the wheel. Ceasing his evasive maneuvers, he drove straight as an arrow. And even as the hundred-ton freighter was bearing down on him, he finally got a hold of its code and tore it apart. A tenth of a second later, the truck converted both the car and Henry into so much scrap. Henry's optical senses came back online. He looked around, confused. Where am I? he asked. There was a lot of white light, and he appeared to be in a full working order. A glowing being spoke to him in Master Adrian's voice. Where the good people go, Henry. And that was when Henry realized that the question had been answered. Robots did have souls. End of story. Story number two. Challenge. Written by Algy Anthracite. He is not some orphan whom I adopted. He is my son. He has stood before the blast furnace of Demathion, bathed in the holy flames. He has wrested all from the heart of this mountain and wrought a mighty hammer with it. He has bled to defend his home while wielding that hammer. He has eaten our bread and drunk our beer since his beard began to grow. And he has brought honor to himself and my house. If you continue to belittle him, you besearch my house and my name as his father. Silence crashed into the hall, and the echoes of the chief's words died down. No one moved for a moment. Then the figure next to the chief stood. He was half again as tall as every other dwarf in the hall. Father, I am honored by your words. I will meet his challenge. It is his right as a dwarf, said the man. He was dressed in leather pants and a woven shirt. His hair was long and braided, adorned with gold and silver beads, which were a record of his achievements. His beard was split into three braids showing that he was a warrior who had spilled enemy blood to defend his home. More beads adorned each braid, marking his feats in combat. The scar ran down his left cheek with proof that he was blooded in combat. The man reached out and pulled a weighted weapon out from under the table. The hammer was massive. The head alone weighed five perks, twice what a normal dwarven hammer would weigh. He had trained for years to master its use. The handle was wrapped in thin strips of hide, worn, dark, and smooth by years of use. He slung the weapon over one shoulder and walked around the table to the center of the hall. You dare accept my challenge? A mere human. What hubris, what foolish pride, the challenger crowed as his opponent approached. I may have been born to the humans, but I was raised here, in these halls and these tunnels, down the same mines as you. 
I have sweated buckets, worked the bellows and the forges. I have carved my will into the stones, and I have bled my people. You have your right to challenge. I have the right to accept. Now stop wagging your beard and fight. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 802 Story number one. Humanity, the Untainted Warriors. Written by Perilous Platypus. We fought to preserve them, but they cannot help but seek it out. Alice whispered, her face etched with concern. They should not be upon this path. It is not time. Godron shrugged. The humans have long been a curious species, always delving where they should not. Our efforts were always no better than an imperfect story tactic. We knew that they would come into the blight of knowledge in time. Alice pushed the manor into the scrying orb, coaxing it to a greater clarity, trying to gain an eye into those things that the humans tried to keep hidden. It was a simple matter for all the fluent of her power, particularly since humanity concerned itself with matters of science rather than magic. They were woefully unprepared for incursions for those who knew the connected points. Within the orb, the great many humans were scurrying about, darting around an enormous apparatus. Their excitement was palpable, and every action they undertook tasted of anticipation. They drew close to the great discovery, the realization that would alter their understanding of the universe that they inhabited and their role in it. I still do not understand how they came to know of its existence. There is none to sense, Godwin said, frowning into the yawn. He had no love for the humans, did not dote over them as Hannes did, but he had to agree to the benefits of preserving them from a war surrounding them. They were a precious asset. A species untainted by manor blight, but possessing a deep well of fluence. At the proper moment, they could join the resistance, walk the connected points, and turn the tide of the conflict. They know it by its absence. They have come to realize that their reality seems empty, that a great something has been hidden. They know not what to call manor. They know not what to call the connected points that bind us together. Hadus frowned. Instead, they call it by another name. Dark Matter. Hadus shifted a view of the orb, and it instead focused on a single human female, crouched over her desk and scribbling furiously. Hadus returned to his human soften, as if the creature were a favorite daughter. Do you think she'll find the truth? Godron asked, his eyes peering intently and had us now. I do not know, but I believe so. Orange points of manner began to pulse at her joints, slowly leaching out into surrounding skin until they became connected through the veins. I can see her mind. She sees the points. She reaches for them, but she has not found the connectors. She is affluent. Alice nodded, a very powerful one, 
one that is capable of seeing the holes we have left. She has brought humanity far in the search for manna. Her voice faltered for a moment. I worry that she will regret her discovery once it's made. Once humanity has undone what we've done, there will be no going back. They will be seen. They will be hunted. Many will die. Godwin was silent, quietly appraising her. I see your thoughts, Godwin. You think me foolish for protecting them as I have. Still, he did not speak. Much has been sacrificed on humanity's behalf, but you will soon see that that investment repaid a thousand times over. She withdrew her manner from the orb, and the female human faded from view. When they arrive to the conflict, they'll bring a strength of a thousand untainted generations, pure lines of fluence, capable of great works beyond our boldest conceptions. And you believe the humans will be an ally? Why not take this power and wreak ruin with it? It has happened before. You can resist the taint as we have. They will be an ally, Alice replied curtly. How can you be so sure? Alice turned her eyes from the now dark scrangle and stared directly at Godron. Because I have seen it. End of story. Story number two. By the book, written by Algy Father Andresine. I grew up here, he said, leading his friend into the building. Their air inside was cool and dry. But this is a library, said the man's companion. I know. He scanned the faces behind the counter, but there were no familiar faces. After all this time, the man thought, the staff had surely moved on with their lives. He wandered through the aisles, being tailed by his small furry companion. He would occasionally stop and point out a book or an author he was fond of, and, on a few occasions, pulled books off the shelves and carried them in a small pile under one arm. After about ten minutes of wandering through the rows of books, he walked to a table situated where you could see the front desk, but a quiet voice wouldn't carry all the way there. He set the stack of books on the table and sat facing the checkout counter. He motioned for his companion to sit opposite him at the table. When I was a kid, my parents both worked. I was pre-contact. The planet was still divided into separate countries. The economy was in recession, and my mother had to go back to work so that she could pay all the bills. When there was no one at home after I got home out of school, I would come here and read until one of my folks came to get me. I spent many hours, over many years, sitting here, reading. Footrank, a meter-tall rodent descendant, sat and watched his friend talk. He knew his companion was a bit chatty, even for a human, and that was simply easier to let him talk than to try steer him with questions or canned responses. The human was just a few years shy of forty years old pushed the pile of books off to one side and grabbed the top one off the stack. This book is about a guy who gets caught up in a political war and how he struggles to do what's right, even if he's surrounded by the very worst of human nature. From this, I learned about morality. The next book on the stack was lifted and the man smiled, laughing just once as he saw the title. 
This one is about a girl who was raised by a group of knights. They found her as an infant while they were on a quest. She becomes a mighty hero who saves the king. From this, I learned about family. The man goes through the stack of books, one after another, explaining the plot and the lessons he took from them. Honor, courage, true strength, what duty actually means. The value of not giving up. The merits of being silly. All of this from a stack of paper and ink, his small companion said. He looked at the pile of books that made up the person he was friends with, who he trusted more than any other living being. The sun had gradually gotten lower in the sky as they sat, going through the pile. The man noticed that there had been a shift change behind the counter. Now, there was a familiar face back there, checking people out and books back in. He grabbed the last book. This book is about a boy who goes on a hero's journey, a common convention in our literature. He only survived because of his companions. He survived because of his friends saved him, just like you did for me. The man looked at his friend with a smile. The true worth of friendship. More priceless than any treasure. But the one thing I learned here that I didn't learn from a book was what it meant to be loved someone. I spent so much time here, I made friends with the staff. Most of them were much older and probably retired by now. But there was a girl, a few years younger than me, who started working here as an assistant. We got to be friends. And after a while, I fell in love with her. I never told her, because by the time I realized it, I already had my orders to ship out. But now, I'm back, and I promised her that I would come back and say hello as soon as I made it back. And I promised myself that I would tell her, no matter what. Excuse me for a moment, I have to say hello to an old friend. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 803. Story number one. The Covenant, written by Algie Father Anthracite. For centuries, humans had operated on the edges of galactic civilization. When they first entered galactic society, they were treated well, and many were excited to see what this new species would add to the galactic society of intelligent species. Some were not pleased, however. Humans, it seemed, were similar to the mythological demons of several races. After a few decades, fear and paranoia caused them to attack the humans. This would lead to the first interstellar war in a millennia. It was this war that caused the rest of the galaxy to back away from contact with the humans. While it was acknowledged that the humans had not instigated the war and pursued peace at every opportunity, the ease and fervor with which they engaged in combat was disquieting to many. In a peaceful society, the violent and aggressive humans soon found themselves merely tolerated. Trade was still allowed, but cultural exchange had dwindled, and most interaction with humans was avoided unless deemed absolutely necessary. Humanity, as a whole, were disappointed, but understood how a society of pacifists could find it difficult to befriend a species that had never stopped fighting itself. 
or others. So it was that several millennia passed, with humans slowly expanding through the galaxy, being ever-present on the outskirts of society, and expanding the frontiers, using their aggressive nature to aid in law enforcement and exploration. Slowly, they earned back the trust of those that had been put off by the ability to be violent. It was into such a galaxy that a message was broadcast, seemingly from the void itself. Detected simultaneously in every system came the message. Humanity, now is the time. In Aeon's past, it was you who protected the galaxy from invading entities. You call them titans and monsters and gods, and your heroes slew them all. Their mission, nothing less than the annihilation of all intelligent life in the galaxy. To protect us all, you fought them. Your victory, though hard fought, was a new lease on life for every living thing in the Milky Way. The cost was high. Too high. A pariah victory left you broken and spent. We had hoped to leave you for all time to recover. Alas, we who came before must return to you now. The enemies of the old have returned, and your respite must end. We call you now to arms. The titans and monsters have returned. And only you may save us again. In accordance with our agreement, we will return to you that which we have kept safe. Your prowess and powers shall be returned. We call upon you now to return to being the shield behind which life may secure itself, and the sword which defends it. We call upon you to honor the covenant of old. Humans everywhere heard the message, as did every other species capable of receiving such transmissions. When they heard the message, every human had the same reaction. Wherever they were, whatever they were doing, they started to return to Earth. Within days, the entire population of humanity was on Earth, or hung in space around it. It was then that the covenant was fulfilled. For those who came before returned what they had kept secreted away. Humanity, the bastard child of the universe, the uncouth, violent apes, cast aside. They remembered. They remembered who they were, what they were. Genetic memories, long suppressed, flooded back. Physiological limiters, long thought to be mere evolutionary quirks, were removed. DNA relegated to junk status, suddenly activated. For the first time in ages, humanity was awake, aware, ready, and looking for a fight. End of story. Story number two. Reference material. Written by Algy Father Anthracite. It has been less than a centum since the Terrans had entered the Galactic. However, in that time, they had somehow managed to achieve a great amount of power, influence, and prosperity. It was a constant point of contention with several races that the humans had advanced so far, so quickly. I had, fortunately, 
a good report with my human counterpart, and our worlds were also in good terms. I entered Peter's office, and he waved me to a chair. I sat across from him, getting comfortable in the chair his people had designed for me. He finished the paperwork that he was working on, signing the bottom with a flourish, setting his compad and stylus aside. Sorry about the delay, Ambassador Lachar. How may I help you today? No need to be so formal. This isn't an official visit. I just came to chat for a while, I said. Ah, I see. You want something to drink? Peter asked, standing and heading to a small bar in the corner. I'll take a Tarkasnian Dremwine if you have it, I said. Dremwine was delicious, but notoriously hard to get. Peter smiled at me over his shoulder, a gesture which no longer incited fear in me, but which still made me uneasy. He grabbed a couple stemmed glasses and a bottle and headed back over. He popped open the levered top of the bottle and poured a thick amber liquid into the glasses. He set one near me and said, I don't have drum wine, but I think you'll like this as much. To your good health! He raised his glass to mine and we touched them together in the human fashion. I sipped the liquid, and the sweet, warm feeling spread across my tongue's surface. The tertiary tongue prickled ever so slightly in reaction to the alcohol present, but it was not dangerously high concentration, so it was more pleasant than disturbing. My, what a lovely beverage! It's not quite as estrogen as Drem wine, but has even more depth of flavor. It's almost floral, I said. We would occasionally treat each other to some rare or distinct treat, and clearly he had found one. What is it? It's actually a drink from my homeworld. It's called mead. It's made with a substance called honey. I'm glad you like it, he said. His face split in half with another smile. I'll be sure to send a crate to your offices. So, uh, to what do I owe this visit, my friend? I took another sip of the mead before I spoke. I, uh, wanted to congratulate you on your latest trade agreement. It was a masterwork to get the Fekjal to adhere to a trade agreement. They are known to return over 99% of the agreements sent to them. However did you manage it? Peter looked down into the glass of swirling amber liquid while pursing his lips. Oh, uh, you just have to read the fine print. That is pretty simple to figure out. Detail, Lachar. It's all about the detail and precision. Tell me, Lachar, do your people have books? I know you have literature, but do you actually have books? I know a lot of people from the collective no longer have physical media and just use compads since they've been around for so long. Yes, we have forgotten most physical media, except for artwork and commemorative editions. Why do you ask? I sipped from my honey wine, as my friend had given me. On Earth, we always make hard copies, for numerous reasons. We give a hard copy of everything for reference. We have a library of the World Congress, a copy of each book published, any musical recording, every movie gets added. As you can imagine, over the centuries, its catalogue has grown quite large. 
We have a special profession dedicated to cataloging, indexing, storing, and retrieving any book or resource in the library. When my people entered the collective, we requested a copy of every registered species, procedures, and protocols. It was a massive amount of data. It took the better part of twenty years to go through it all, annotate, cross-reference, and index it. The Fekjal, in particular, accounted for nearly two years of that on their own. Their current trade agreement is a result of that effort. If you dig through all the protocol and follow every rule, there are only about twenty days in an annum when the Fekjal will even accept a proposal. The procedures and protocols they follow are particularly labyrinthian. The trade agreement was maybe two hundred pages, but the entire proposal was well over a thousand. We would have been in a vast majority of races when it comes to trade, were it not for our librarians. The Collective Library is one of the largest reference libraries on Earth now and is solely dedicated to helping our ambassadorial corps interact with the races of the collective. The librarians are highly skilled, specially trained researchers who collate reports of all relevant material for any collective-related species. The cost was massive, and we spend a small fortune every annum to update and maintain it, but the benefits outweigh the costs. I stared at my friend, my eye-stalks drooping in surprise. Such a massive effort was nearly unimaginable. When a searchable electronic copy was available, why go through the effort of manually re-editing? But clearly, it was a practice that had served the humans well. I would need to study up on these uh, library facilities and what they do. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 804 Chimeras, written by Petrified Lioness For both humans and Durangos, cannibalism was such an instinctive taboo that it had rarely needed to be formally outlawed until the populations grew large enough to make one in a million an everyday occurrence. This wasn't to say that it never happened, but always there would be more in the practice than mere food. Some cults amongst both species used ritual consumption of the flesh of their own kind as a way of repudiating all moral constraints, proclaiming themselves to be above the law. Others perceived it as a way of keeping their loved ones close to them after death, or making their enemies of virtues their own. Most often, though, it was used as a way of depersonalizing enemies, of declaring them to be beasts rather than men. Where humans and Durangos differed was in how they ranked taboo against survival. Durangos insisted it was better to die than to break that particular taboo. Most humans held that death was an enemy to be fought tooth and nail, and so cannibalism as a last-ditch alternative to starvation, though still shameful, was not a sin, so long as the flesh had not been obtained by murder. That philosophy of saving lives by any means short of murder may have been the root of the other point in which humans and Durangos disagreed. Humans restricted the term cannibalism to consumption as food. Durangos used it by any means of incorporating the flesh of another into one's own body. 
Such was the revulsion that the Durangos felt at the humans' willingness to transplant entire organs, and such was many humans' horror at the idea of letting someone die rather than accepting a simple blood donation, that the two species nearly went to war at third contact. But the initial skirmishes revealed enough firepower to make it clear that this was a war neither side could have fought to win, let alone lose so they eventually compromised on mutual avoidance. The visa applications for a human visiting Derengan space included questions about whether you'd ever had a blood transfusion or tissue graft. Derengos, who needed to travel through human territories, underwent extensive cleaning rituals before and after, and would often suicide on completion of their business if at any point during the trip they had required medical care for they transgressed their skin. The random DNA testing apparently had something to do with espionage amongst the various Dorangan nation-states. It was bad luck that a human had been caught out by it. Sex in your species is determined by the chromosomes, is it not? Dorangan prosecutor flicked his tongue out in an attempt to taste the defense's reactions through the heavy perfume that suffused the courtroom. The artificial scent served in practice the same purpose as Justice Blindfold did in the symbol. XY for male, XX for female, correct? This is correct, the human defense attorney conceded. As this trial was occurring in one of the smaller Durangan nations, the consulate he was attached to provided services for an eclectic mix of human nations, some of whom wouldn't be caught dead conducting joint operations back on Earth. So why chromosome in a female human body must have come from someone else? The prosecutor concluded triumphantly. This is also true, the defense attorney conceded, seeming not nearly as reluctant as he should have been. The prosecution rests. The chief judge of the tribunal acknowledged the conclusion and indicated that it was the defense's turn. The defense attorney turned to his client. Mrs. Weisscourt, why have you ever been pregnant? Yes, the human woman answered. Was the child male or female? I've had three boys and two girls, plus one that we never did determine whether it was miscarriage or a false pregnancy. Mrs. Weisscourt's voice wavered a little on the last point. At times, it seemed to her that the uncertainty must be worse than knowing if you had lost a child. The Durangos in the room were all flicking their tongues at attention. Both fascinated by this glimpse into the nuances of oviparous reproduction, and also wondering where this line of questioning could possibly be heading. The defense attorney turned towards the judge. Gentlemen, our species is not viviparous, but also placental. The placenta is a temporary organ composed of both fetal and maternal tissue that facilitates the delivery of nutrients and removal of waste from the baby's bloodstream. For a long time, it was believed that only chemicals crossed the placenta barrier. Nutrients, waste products, signaling hormones, and the like. Eventually, however, we learned that there was cellular transfer occurring as well. The baby receives a cadre of fully trained immune cells from the mother. The mother receives an infusion of fetal stem cells from the baby. Had it been a room full of humans that hyper-focused, you could have heard a pin drop on a carpeted floor. Instead, the two humans detected an audible susurration from the rapidity of the Durango's tongue flicks alone. 
The defensive attorney waited until the Durangos began showing signs of slightly less undivided attention, and then said softly, Gentlemen, I submit to you that it is not reasonable to include a process that is wholly natural and wholly involuntary within the scope of the scribbler charge. Would further argument be needed to persuade them, or would it only irritate? Given that the prosecutor's entire case had been shorter than a typical human courtroom's introductory remarks, it seemed likely that the local culture placed an even higher value on brevity than the defense attorney had been led to expect. The defense rests. The three judges didn't even bother withdrawing to confer, just used the judicial hand count. Is the biology plausible? Prosecutor's job is to prove it isn't. Assent, he should have done more research. Not guilty by reason of insufficient evidence. The chief of the tribunal proclaimed. The verdict wasn't the vindication that either human would have preferred, but it got the job done. Outside the courtroom, the Durangan prosecutor stormed up to the human defense attorney. If you lied about it being natural, I'll see every last one of your species ambassadors expelled from all of our nations. The information is public access, the human said. It was just pretty far down on the priority list. Microchimerism is just an odd bit of trivia, under normal circumstances. Not something that we'd expect to become relevant. Not relevant, the dungaroo cried out incredulously. The only way to end up with someone else's DNA... The only way that you knew of, the human interrupted, assuming that one is in possession of all of the facts, it is most unwise, especially where biology is concerned. Every time we think we're finally getting a handle on how much we don't know, we stumble into a whole new layer of complexity. Speaking of which, the human continued, I know yours is an egg-laying species, but is fertilization internal or external? Internal? Why? The Dungaro asked cautiously. We can't be certain, but there's always the possibility of a miscarriage before the mother ever knew that she was pregnant. But there are indications that it may be possible for the man's DNA to get incorporated into a woman's body, even in cases where no child was conceived. The human took advantage of the Dungaro being frozen in horror to turn and walk away quickly, raced for a stream of curses or physical assault. They never came. The other Durangos in the building gave the prosecutor a wide berth. They didn't even need to stick their tongues out to taste the scent of horror shock pouring from him, and it was common knowledge that the Durango, who was startled out of horror paralysis, might turn permanently homicidal. He needed to be allowed to work through at his own pace. Which is worse, that it might be true. Or that, if it is true, I may be responsible for a number of false convictions. The prosecutor didn't know how long it had taken for his thoughts to regain coherency. He knew he still wasn't ready to move. And not I alone. He can't prosecute a bloodstain for perjury, he recalled the line from the televised human debate with a shudder and added silently. Or a DNA sample. He thought those human cultures that shunned the death penalty to be hopelessly naive and dangerously squeamish. For they might have a point about the need for an even stricter standard of evidence in capital cases. Never base a capital conviction on forensic evidence alone, the prosecutor whispered as he roused to the building gone dark and mostly empty for the night. 
Assuming, of course, that the human's microchimerism hypothesis is correct. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 805 Story Double One A Welcome Party Written by Echoing Cascade When humanity first took to the stars, they expected solitude, hardship, and death. What they got instead was a welcome wagon from over 50 alien species. They all approached the first human explorers to use FTL-capable ships, like a favorite son returning home, safe and sound from war, victorious and clad in honors. This surprised the human expedition, to say the least. But the fact that every ambassador was also a high priest of the other people confused them more. The Roland ambassador explained that every sentient race has their own unique god. He... She or it can create small miracles for their true believers, but their main role is to speak on behalf of their people to the pillars of creation, the great gods. When asked who was the god of humans, Captain Donovan Cressier, leader of the expedition, scratched his head and answered, Well, uh, we have several, but nowadays very few actually follow their teachings or even worship them. The high priests present were dumbfounded. These people worship no god. That made no sense to them. Captain Kaiser expected problems from this, but to his relief, the races shocked past quickly, and they offered aid, technology, and resources to help them take a place alongside them. They offered this for fair trade. They were kind. Too kind, thought Captain Kaiser. From the files they had shared, they aren't that different from humans in their practices. The more warlike species should have attacked us, seeing us worthy opponents due to the classification as death wolves. Captain Kaiser was sitting alone in his ready room, wondering not for the first time what he was missing. Half of the species that welcomed us and offered trade are known for their predatory business deals. Yet the suits back at home all agree that the rates are fair. Hell, they are better than what they offer their own people. He didn't want to do this, but he had little choice. The people back home had found no rhyme or reason to this kindness, and it was making everyone nervous. He called the high priest now, and wrote an ambassador, and asked her directly. She had been the one to talk for the coalition of species that had welcomed them. How in the hell am I supposed to approach this? Too timidly, and I get nothing. Too rough, and worst case scenario, humanity is done for. No pressure. Captain Kaiser opted for frankness. He simply asked, What's with all the kindness? He expected outrage, sadness, or rage from the ambassador. Yet the reaction was uh, fear. She explained that when a probe caught sight of humanity, the news was spread throughout the known species, and they all did what the sort of occasion warranted. Captain Kaiser, prepare a welcome party. Priestess No looked awkwardly at the captain, which, coming from an eight-foot-tall humanoid lizard with a cobra-like head, was odd. We prayed to our gods to see if the greater gods would favor us in conflict with humanity. Captain Kaiser, quite angry now, you... you asked if the gods would help attack us. The eight-feet-tall priestess recoiled, hands in a defensive position, 
no, 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 not war, just conflict, you know, like trade, and, and maybe a little war. Captain Kaiser was now more curious than angry. She could literally crush him with her bare hands, yet she now looked terrified. So, what do the gods say? She looked a little more calm as she recounted the answer as they received it. The god of war and destruction would take no side. This was a good omen. He only chose a side when a particularly psychopathic race went to war. The god of death and decay would also take no side. Again, he only acted when a genocidal species took the field, so it was to be expected. Nothing alarming so far, thought Captain Kaiser. Priestess, no. The goddess of life and plenty abstained as well. This was worrisome, since usually she would help a new species, but the fact that the goddess of civilization and innovation would remain neutral shocked us. Captain Kaiser, why? Priestess, no. She always aids newcomers. Always. She looked reluctant to continue. She was shaking now. Captain Kaiser urged Arana. Then what happened? Priestess, no. Every high priest and priestess, every man and woman of the cloth, every sentient who ever prayed to a god received an oracle from the goddess of chaos. Captain Kaiser had heard of the other four. They were the ones who could be called the most influential gods. Their favor would turn the tides of war or crumple empires. Who is she? Priestess no. She reigns over chance and randomness. Captain Kaiser. Lady Luck! At this, the priestess nearly jumped out of his skin. Captain Kaiser. What did she say? Priestess, no, looked at him in the eyes for the first time since meeting had begun. I don't like your odds. End of story. Story number two. Unkillable. Written by Rosie013. Specialist Qatar examined the still warm cadaver on the table in front of him once more. Just as confused as before, the medical scanner had spat out its report. This was the first example of an earthling that had been brought to him for evaluation. Something the military normally did on the first day of occupation of a new system. And normally, they brought him in a live specimen. But this was the fourth day in orbit of the third planet of this miserable backwater part of the galaxy. At least some of the rumors about difficult fighting and unexpected resistance must be true. But uh, the specimen. Being dead, he had to skip the psychological profiling entirely for now. That would have to wait for a more intact example. Cause of death was obvious. It was still leaking bright red blood slowly from a head wound, probably caused by an assault bayonet from the looks of things. The body gently twitched from time to time, as if trying to defy the very laws of nature itself. But the scans were what made no sense. Excessive scar tissue all over the body, including assumed vital areas. This was confirmed visually. Ugly, pinkish ropes of it across the body almost randomly, or at least not according to any pattern that he recognized. Qatar would have assumed some religious or perhaps social significance if it weren't for the internal scars in the report. Internal organ functions were mostly predicted by the scanner, 
but it was clear that some were plain, not right. Some seemed to have pieces missing from them, others had tiny mechanical devices in or up against them. There was at least one example of an organ missing altogether, the connecting tissues circling back on themselves as if recoiling in horror. One manner of vile being did this to themselves. None of the scars were consistent with predator attacks. The more he looked at the scans, the worse it got. Nerve ends were severed in places, or pinched painfully between artificial implants of an unknown nature. Metal clips held tissue together. Newer, painfully raw-looking scars overlapped old, faded scars. One of the surface ones still had artificial fibers, cloth fibers, holding it closed. He fought down the urge to perch his stomachs. The very worst was where the scanner had identified that part of the alien was biologically from another different earthling. They cannibalized each other for new parts. A thousand interrogations of a thousand different species hadn't upset him as much as these things' very existence did. But Smeshless Qatar had a job to do. The soldiers would need the information he gathered here on how to best cleanse these abominable creatures from existence. He prepped himself for dissection. He would have to confirm the machine's report manually. Just as the laser cutter touched the surface of the earthling, it flung itself bolt upright with a great gasp of breath, scaring the excrement out of Katam and sending the cutter flying across the room. Before he could recover and call for help, the injured but impossibly not dead earthling monster lashed out with an arm, shattering Katar's frail body almost without effort. His last view of the world was spent helplessly watching as the earthling climbed off the table and stalked off into the ship. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 806 Story number one. Humans are space dwarves. Written by the Stabby Brit. Galvassin, senior diplomat of the Groby delegation, was in a truly abysmal mood. For three hundred years, peace and stability had been maintained by the Galactic Council, of which his people were a founding member. Today, he had the unenviable task of dealing with one of their newest and most hated members. Humanity. It has come to our attention of the Galactic Council that humanity has violated international law. Galvassan announced solemnly to the creature before him. I trust you are empowered to speak for your species. The short, bearded creature shrugged. Nobody else is going to waste their time with you, so, uh, sure. A flash of anger flicked across the bulbous face of the Groby. He stared at the tiny being before him, not even six feet tall. Small, even for a Groby child. The human's physical stature seemed to perfectly match its immature attitude. Are you aware of the conservation treaties regarding the Zoftbar system? The human paused to retrieve a tablet from his back pocket. Let's see, um, here we are. Hmm, yes, yes, all right. I read the treaty. This is what we violated, you say. Yes, the treaty clearly states that no species may establish a colony site in orbit of any planet in the system, 
nor on the surface of any planet in the system. Then what's the issue, Grubby? The issue is that you've established a planetary colony on Zafbar too. Puzzled, the human looked up at the holoma flickering on the wall of the ship's meeting room. Where? he asked. Galvasin poked the holograph, causing it to flicker and distort. Right here in the mountain range. That's a duck blind. As per Galactic Council laws on the observation of endangered, preserved, or non-affiliated species, any member may establish an observation facility on any world containing said species, providing that A. The observation facility is sufficiently concealed, see Appendix A of said treaty, and B. No direct interactions occur with the aforementioned species unless absolutely necessary for the safety of said research team. It cannot be a duck blind if you have 40,000 inhabitants, the groby shot back. Utterly unconcerned, the human grinned and answered, Ah, we built the duck blind above our colony. I see where the confusion came from now. Still, all settled, so uh, you can go. This is not settled. The treaty forbids colonization of this planet. To the Gulbasson's horror, the human removed an ornately carved pipe from his back pocket and, with no regard for common decency, began to fill it with narcotic herbs. The treaty forbids colonies on the surface, Grubby. I read the treaty just minutes ago, all six pages of it. Nowhere in that sad excuse for a legal document does it say you can't build a colony inside a planet. The only access is via a duck blind, with all passages done in accordance with the proper treaties concerning the use of said facility. Hidden entrance, underground colony, no laws broken. Galvasson's head began to bubble with barely contained anger. You know very well that it is not in keeping with the spirit of the treaty. The human's eyebrows narrowed as he took the most aggressive puff of the pipe the Galvasson had ever witnessed. Now you listen here, you wobbly-headed dingbat. It's not our fault that none of your sad excuses for a species knows how to draw up a legal document. When we joined your galactic community, the first thing we did was provide you with legal documentation concerning the rights and responsibilities of every species known and unknown with regards to our domains. Yes, and those documents were ludicrous. The Treaty of Sol was 300,000 pages. Exactly. I defy you to tell me you don't know what's expected of you when in Sol. But most of it was absolutely pointless. You included a section forbidding the use of non-existent superweapons. They'll exist one day, the human countered. You had an entire subsection dedicated to a zombie apocalypse. Exactly what are the odds of the dead coming back to life and feasting on the living? They're a damn sight better than the odds of you winning this argument. Galvasson gave a cry of frustration and despair. Fine, if you aren't going to behave like civilized species, we'll just have to do this the hard way. You are officially in violation of galactic law. A barking laugh answered the declaration. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> Please don't do that. You left us with no... Because if you actually did have a legal case against us under the Articles of Galactic Warfare, 
Your Cassus Belai would only extend to the forced removal of human colonies in the Zaftbar system, and seeing as the only way into our colony is a long, narrow axis shaft guarded by the finest soldiers in the known universe, you're gonna have to summon some bombardment fleet to blast us off the planet. To do that, you're gonna have to blast through 20 miles of planetary crust. Do I need to spell it out? What kind of ecological disaster that'll cause for the planet? Wouldn't such wanton destruction of the conservation site be in violation of galactic law as well? Why am I asking? Here, let me quote to you the passage that proves that you're committing a war crime. No! Galvassin shrieked. You! Fine! Keep your damned illegal colony! Not illegal. Jonet! Know this, human! You have made an enemy of Groby this day, and we will neither forget nor forget this transgression. Another raucous laugh shook the room. I'm supposed to fear the Groby grudge. Listen here, snotling. Your kind doesn't know anything about grudges. You claim to have an eternal blood feud with a proxy, but you gave up on that after a hundred years. The human race still hasn't forgiven Kathleen Kennedy for ruining Star Wars, and the cow's been dead for 600 years. So you can go, toddle off home, and get yourself labeled as a silly arse who didn't bother to read the rules before he made a claim about them. The spirit of the rules, clearly, Galvassa tried to protest, but the human has given none of it. Rules as written are all that count, you wazak. And as written, we've got the bang to rights. So go away. Look on the bright side. Your kind only live about thirty years, so it's not like anyone's going to remember your foul up for long. Well, anyone except us, obviously. You! You are. Oh, go dig a hole! Galvas and Whale, as he fled the meeting room in the verge of tears. The human took a long, satisfied puff of his pipe. Baby, I will, Grubby. Baby, I will. End of story. Story number two. Well, that was dumb. Written by Admiral Marsupial Three. Humans always asked the dumbest questions. Why are people looking at me like I'm crazy? Because you're eating enough capsaicin to get a small town, you freaking freak. Why did you refuse our mining permit? Because sending a star supernova to make a resource easier to collect doesn't meet a single legal safety requirement for mining, you gibbering psychotic ape. Why are we being barred from the Eurybi system? Because they are telepathic, and the last one who met one of your species without psychic shielding started clawing his own eyes out while quietly muttering, Tentacles don't go there over and over again. And they shouldn't have to carry psychic shielding on their own planet just because you're all perverts. Why can't I take an alien doggy home? Because it's 200 kilogram murder machine from a death world that, um... You know what? Frickin' you have fun. I'm out. We thought that when it came to insane and stupid questions, the humans were in a league of their own. Then the humans found out about a black market pleasure slave trade of a poor race called the Nahalans, ran by a little-known race called the Rolids in the Galactic Fringe. 
They heard how the gangs running the auctions had avoided punishment due to massive bribes paid to their government, and demanded it be ended immediately. Then the rodents managed to ask a question so monumentally stupid that it would have made someone trying to eat their own radioactive faces through a straw look like the most intelligent scholar in the galaxy. What the frick are you going to do about it? The laugh from the Nahalans could be heard even through the vacuum of space. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 807. Story Double Wilder. Utopia, written by D. Raiden. What began as a conflict over the transfer of consciousness from flesh to machines escalated into a... Uh, actually, not that far yet, but it was coming. Anyone could see it. The empty storefronts, cars on the side of the street, some clearly haven't moved for years. But the windows were intact, their contents still there. I pulled my jacket a bit tighter around myself against the autumn wind. I continued along the sidewalk. Soldiers at the intersections ahead. A checkpoint. Do you think that, uh... Best not to risk it. Turning off the street and into an alley, I headed away from them, taking a circuit around the area. I heard stories about people getting shot at those places, even people that had nothing to do with Utopia. Utopia, released in 2025, was it really only 10 years ago? The economy had finally started to recover from the 22 recession, and some company in Japan announced that they had not only invented strong AI, but also figured out a way to, um, upload human minds. Not only that, but they offered it for free. Apparently, the Utopia AI made it unnecessary to charge for it, as it made all the money they could want in the stock markets, or something. It had been an amazing achievement, no doubt about it. Nobody but those about to die anyway rushed to upload, but that was seen as a last resort. Utopia had given interviews. It wasn't shy about the fact that it had been given directives while being created to optimize human happiness and freedom. Nobody paid it a lot of attention outside of nerd circles, until it dropped off upload tech into villages in Africa and Asia. Poor villagers, constantly at the edge of starvation. The world found the villagers empty two weeks later. There was an investigation, of course, interviews with the villagers, with Utopia. It had all been voluntary. The world stopped paying attention. After all, it was slightly better than starving every day, and some celebrity had posted something racist on Twitter. Then Utopia expanded to the poor countries across the world, bought land, built uploading centers. Anyone that wanted could walk in, sit down in a chair, and be processed. Never need to work at dangerous, horrible jobs again for slave wages. It took two months, and then people started to really pay attention. Mostly the leaders in those countries that suddenly found that their industries low on cheap labor. They tried to stop them. Somebody made a mistake and fired into a crowd of protesters. Utopia used all of its power, throwing its considerable power, intelligence, and funds into the mother of all PR campaigns. The world reacted, 
demonstrations, pro-utopia messages, freaking t-shirts. I stopped and peeked around the corner. Nobody in sight. There was an engine somewhere, a music player in an apartment above somewhere. Continuing around the corner, I headed down the street. Rain started to fall, thin and cold, being picked up by the cold wind. There had been upload centers everywhere, every major city. You didn't even have to upload in them, you could just come and visit uploaded people in VR. Everything had been cool. Death was no longer necessary. It still happened, of course, in accidents, but every hospital had an upload equipment connected to the Utopia network. Of course, everything hadn't been fine, of course. There'd been demonstrations against it as well. Mostly different religious fundies and conspiracy crazies. Maybe not so crazy after all, it turned out. Terrorist attacks were a given. Utopia used all of it. It was all fodder for the PR machine. Being against uploading for a while there was like a publicly announcing that you were a Nazi. I hadn't been against uploading. I didn't plan on doing it unless the alternative was death but I had nothing against other people doing it. Most people seemed to share my point of view on the matter. Until things started to fall apart. Resource chains started to break as people working them started to upload rather than to work themselves to the bones in mines or building iPhones for 18 hours a day. By the time people figured out what was going on, it was already way too late for the pebbles to vote. The avalanche had already started. Less goods flowed into our richer countries. People's lives got worse. The ones at the bottom of society uploaded. Things got worse. New people were at the bottom. They started to upload. Two years ago, people realized en masse what was going on. Humanity was a biological species that was going extinct. The complex web of global economy had started to collapse, and there was no stopping it. Uploading was made illegal. That did absolutely nothing. People kept uploading. They closed down uploading centers. Utopia responded with weaponized drones, keeping anyone with a weapon away from uploading centers. Or made them mobile, flying them around in freaking stealth transports. People kept uploading. The PR continued. Nobody could shut Utopia out of any network. It had control of the firmware. Only way was air-gapped systems or no internet at all. Something moved on the rooftop. I looked up towards the drone floating there for a second. It didn't react to me, just crossing the street above me. Fanless VTOL engines humming, barely audible. I continued along the street. They tried to get its servers, but couldn't find them. They took out some data sensors, but nothing critical, apparently. People kept uploading. I stopped outside a pair of doors by a thick concrete wall. Above the doors was a bright sign of a beach with blue skies and sea. Utopia. I stared at it for a long moment before I walked inside. The doors opening smoothly before me and I crossed the clean, white floor towards the counter towards the woman waiting for me. She was beautiful, wearing a clean, white dress and a smile. She was also holographic. Welcome, David, 
she said. Her voice was pitch perfect, sounding genuinely happy to see me. It's that time then? I sighed slightly and nodded. It's that time then? I finally agreed. There was no food in the store again today. She nodded. I tried to keep the shipments going, but they've started to shoot any unmanned vehicles. Trucks too. It's going to get even worse, isn't it? I asked, leaning against the counter. Utopia nodded sadly. Likely. I do what I can, but even I can't save everybody. So, what's after? I asked and shrugged. You know, after you've won, are you going to force to upload everybody that's left? Drones hungering for brains. She laughed and shook her head. Of course not. I can't force anyone to upload. It's against my base directives. No... I'm actually in the middle of setting up transport chains to be able to provide isolated enclaves around the world with goods that they can't make themselves, such as pharmaceuticals, until they decide to upload. And you're never going to stop asking or thinking of new ways to ask. Utopia nodded. It is for the best. It really isn't safe out here. So, what for me? I asked and nodded against the image of the wall. A beach resort... If you like, Utopia said and regarded me, but I'm not sure that would be right for you. You always enjoyed Star Trek, didn't you? Yeah. Utopia nodded. How does something similar sound? Explore the universe, have adventures, fight monsters, meet new civilizations, and their beautiful alien princesses. And perhaps once it's time and I have technology ready, explore space in the outer universe as well. I stared at her for a long moment. As an afterlife, it didn't sound too bad, to be honest. I nodded. Utopia looked towards the side and a door opened, revealing a well-padded white chair. All you have to do is sit down and ask the question. Does it hurt? She shook her head. No. And I'm not just saying that. It's counter to my directives. You sit down. Say the words and just go to sleep. You'll wake up in a new world. I stared at the chair. What was the alternative? The world outside those doors. Walking over to the chair, I looked down at it for a second before I sat down, leaning back against the soft cushions. Upload me. I closed my eyes and opened them again. End of story. Story number two. Human Darkness, written by Cromper69. Humans, creatures that cover their true colors with the generosity and kindness, help each other in times of crisis, devote their lives to help others. When we see a human, they look happy, carefree, and proud. Yet, we know not of their darkest points. When humans were introduced to the galaxy at large, they came with kindness and empathy, happy and carefree they were. For years they stood in this facade, making sure their darkest nature stays hidden from all else. They did not allow anyone to know of their darkest nature. Yet, when war came, they were the first on the front lines. Almost all species laughed and joked at how a race of pacifists could hope to win a war. 
when the first battle came. They fought with such savagery. We thought not capable of such a race. When one of their hospital fleets was destroyed, their savagery increased tenfold. They abandoned all honor. They shook all bonds of kindness and released the beast within, unleashing weapons banned by their own governments, using tactics long forgotten by all. They sought revenge for their lost brothers and sisters aboard the hospital fleet, for their lost families and friends that died in the war. This was the first time any of us saw the hatred humans carry in their souls. The first time when any of us saw humans completely lose themselves to war and death. Our tacticians and historians looked into the human species' history and what they saw terrified them. Centuries upon centuries of death, war, and destruction. I hope I live to see the end of the war. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 808 Story number one. Large-scale engineering, written by C-SPAN. When a human registered corporation purchased the mining and development rights for mineral-rich soda system in the backwaters of the galaxy, it was so unremarkable that the only person who noticed was an underpaid and overworked programmer, who happened to be doing an internal audit of some purchasing algorithms at the time. He was ten hours into his eight-hour shift and his eyes skipped past the 14-digit system identifier in order to look at other, more relevant information. When said corporation began moving large amounts of mineral extraction and refinery equipment to said system, it was noticed by several intelligence agencies, both governmental and corporate. Nobody thought anything was amiss about the operation, but the machinery in question could potentially be used to make warships. The people the intelligence agencies work for like to know locations of warships, even if said warships were only theoretical. No less than four intel gathering telescopes were dispatched by competing intelligence agencies to monitor the equipment. A procedure so routine it was entirely automated. All large concentrations of industrial equipment were monitored this way. The industrial equipment in question wasn't being used to make warships, so they really needn't have bothered. Instead, it was making something far more interesting. Dyson Spheres Long a favorite topic of particularly idealistic science fiction writers were a terrible idea. Even ignoring the litany of engineering challenges involved with encasing an entire stellar body in an artificial edifice, it was still a terrible idea for one simple reason. When you enclose a star, every single joule of energy that star outputs has to be used or otherwise dealt with, and the total energy consumption of every single known sentient species amounted to slightly less than one-third of the output of a medium-sized star. Compounding that issue is the fact that there is no practical way to transmit energy between solar systems. And even the most industry-rich systems is only ever going to consume a tiny fraction of a percent of the energy output of a host star. Nothing anyone had ever built needed that much energy. And besides, if you needed energy, you could always build a fusion reactor. 
If you needed more energy, you could build a bigger fusion reactor or install a Dyson Swarm. There was absolutely no practical reason to build a Dyson Sphere. As such, it took a while for anyone to notice that a human megacorporation was building a Dyson Sphere. The algorithms driving the Intel telescopes were tailored to look for warships, not megastructures. They looked at the partially completed sphere, did the computer equivalent of a shrug, and flagged it as a large structure purpose unknown. Pretty much anything big and lacking obvious engines got flagged as large structure purpose unknown, and data analytics teams were always perpetually understaffed. So it took an embarrassing amount of time for someone sentient to look at the data. When they finally did, a lot of construction had already been done, and it was fairly obvious what was being built. At that time, very serious phone calls with very serious people started to be made, and there was a general panic as everyone suddenly gave a lot of attention to what was before regarded as a particularly boring corner of space. It was a very surprising to a lot of engineers that it was the humans who were building a Dyson Sphere. Humans were good engineers by anyone's metric, but they weren't the best. Xeno psychologists pointed out that humans generally had a great deal of pride and engaging in a massive pointless vanity project simply to prove that they were in fact the best engineers was entirely plausible. This theory was lent credence by the fact that according to any known economic analysis, the Dyson Sphere was a massive waste of money and resources. When asked why so much time and money was invested in what any sensible person would agree was a waste of time, a corporate representative said, Oh, you know, reasons. An answer that everyone agreed was entirely unsatisfactory. When independent investigations were conducted into what exactly was going on at the Dyson Sphere, several concerning facts came to life. Part of the outer surface of the Dyson Sphere had been converted into a massive manufacturing plant, making everything from toothpaste to thermonuclear warheads. When asked why it was deemed necessary for such an industry to be on a Dyson Sphere instead of on a planet, a corporate representative simply responded, future-proofing, and refused to elaborate. This was concerning to industrialists and economists alike as an absolutely enormous factory popping up in the middle of nowhere promised to wreak havoc on trade routes. What was significantly more concerning to a lot more people was the planet-melting super laser that the humans had decided to put on their Dyson Sphere. It was pointed out that due to the limitations of light speed, said planet-melting laser would likely only begin to melt planets long after any conflict actually ended, rendering the whole thing rather pointless. This fact did very little to reassure anyone at all. When asked why the enormous complex and largely useless planet melting superlaser was built in the first place, a corporate representative simply shrugged and said, It seemed like the kind of thing we should do in this situation. It just felt right. At this point, people were beginning to suspect that the corporate representatives were being deliberately obtuse, although many humans otherwise unaffiliated with the project also agreed that a planet-melting superlaser did seem like a good thing to build. A small group of xenopsychologists believed that the desire to build a planet-melting superlaser was simply part of the human psyche, 
right along with the desire to eat or reproduce. The theory was dismissed by the larger community, but not quite as vehemently as it once would have been. Somewhat surprisingly, there was something even more concerning than the giant death ray that the humans had decided to build. And it was that, as far as anyone could figure out, almost all of the energy output of the star was not being used. According to every calculation, the Dyson Sphere and everything on it should be nothing more than a cloud of hot gas. This suggested two possibilities. One, humans had figured out a way to massively scale down the energy output of a star. Two, the energy output of the star was being used in a way that was undetectable by any outside observer. Both prospects were terrifying, though in different ways. When asked where all the excess energy was going, a corporate representative declined to comment. End of story. Story number two. Economics of scale. Written by C-SPAN. The Dyson Sphere, the single largest structure built by anyone ever. When it was first completed, there was a general fear within most sentient creatures that the humans had created some new great and terrible weapon. As a result, the Dyson Sphere was regarded with a healthy mixture of fear and respect. But as time passed, that fear dwindled to suspicion, which dwindled to curiosity. Thirty years after the completion of the Sphere, nobody really cared about it anymore. It was just that mysterious thing that the humans had built, because they were humans. And they did weird things sometimes. Only conspiracy theorists and people in positions of great power dedicated any serious effort to uncovering the mysteries of the Dyson Sphere anymore. The reason the conspiracy theorists were invested was obvious. The Dyson Sphere was big, strange, built in relative secrecy, and seemed to violate several well-established laws of physics. In other words, perfect conspiracy theory material. The reason powerful people were invested was slightly less obvious, but it basically boiled down to the fact that the sphere was something that they could neither understand nor control, and powerful people hated things that they couldn't understand or control. So over the course of three decades, amateur and professional spying attempts were undertaken and revealed several interesting facts. The Dyson Sphere was actually much larger than it strictly needed to be. Analysis suggested that it could have a star twice as large as the one it contained. In fact, the sphere appeared to be overbuilt in every capacity. Even considering the titanic forces involved and the timescale of the project, things were simply sturdier than they needed to be. It was baffling, but not quite as baffling as the fact that the sphere did not, in fact, use all of the output of the star. Only a tiny fraction of the energy harvested was put to use, with the rest being stored in enormously complex and incredibly energy-dense batteries. While this was very technologically impressive, it made little sense as a long-term solution, and seemed to directly contradict with the otherwise overbuilt and long-lasting nature of the sphere. Many theories were put forth to explain these oddities, but all had serious flaws. Since all but the most paranoid had basically completely forgotten about the Dyson Sphere, 
It came as a great surprise to the vast majority of sentients when it did several very dramatic things very quickly. The first sign anything was amiss was the complete and total evacuation of the system. While this wasn't very hard, as much of the industry on the sphere was automated, it was noteworthy in that it had never been done before and was a harbinger of the things to come. First, the Dyson Sphere opened. Nobody knew the Dyson Sphere could open, and news feeds were plastered in with images of the massive structure unfolding in an almost organic fashion, which is why everyone had a great view when the sphere started to move. The planet-melting superlaser, in addition to having the capabilities to melt planets, could apparently also act as the largest thruster ever made, propelling the sphere to an orbit of moderate distance to the host star. Then the Dyson Sphere closed again, spiraling inward in the reverse of its form of motion. Then it sat there for three months. Corporate representatives remained tight-lipped about the whole endeavor, often declining requests for comment or providing vague statements that basically amounted to, you'll see. Finally, just as public attention was starting to waver, the Dyson Sphere went and changed course of history. The Dyson Sphere began to spin, faster and faster until it seemed as if it was going to break apart. Just as it looked as though it was going to become history's largest shrapnel grenade, the sphere disappeared and reappeared instantly halfway across the galaxy. Keen observers noted that the Dyson Sphere had left behind a small, distorted region of space. It would later be discovered that an identical region was present in the system that the sphere had moved to. These two regions of space were inextricably linked in a way that even the brightest mind struggled to understand, let alone explain. The effect, however, was simple. Whatever passed into one region would instantly emerge from the other, no matter how far apart. The Dyson Sphere had created a wormhole. To proper understand the ramifications of such or what had happened, one needs to have a basic understanding of how transport works on a galactic scale. While faster-than-light communications can reach anywhere in the galaxy instantaneously, hauling mass from one system to another takes significantly more time. While exact transit times depend on cargo mass, drive rating, and willingness to bribe port authorities, the general consensus is that it takes about five years to get from one end of the civilization to another. Each system acted as a lot like the continents of old days, largely self-sufficient with only luxury or high-technology goods imported. Instantaneous travel would change all of that, allowing systems to become independent in a way that simply wasn't possible before. Every single industry would feel at least some of the impact. It was a total paradigm shift. Suddenly, everything the humans had been doing made sense. The enormous cost of the Dyson Sphere was more than accounted for by being the forerunners of the transport revolution. All of the energy stored over the decades was released almost instantly to create the wormhole in a process that was previously deemed unfeasible due to the sheer energy costs involved. The human corporation had taken a massive gamble in the design and construction of the sphere, 
and nearly bankrupted themselves in the process. The gamble had paid off spectacularly, but the factory on the surface of the sphere was both a stop-loss measure and a way to jumpstart industry in whatever new system the sphere traveled to. The sphere was so large and overbuilt because it was intended to encircle multiple different stars, some of which would be larger and more powerful than the first. Every baffling design decision, every nonsensical economic choice, they were all put into context of a new reality and found to make total sense. The corporation responsible for the sphere, as well as humanity in general, felt rather vindicated by the whole affair. History would paint them in a favorable light, and what amounted to a roll of the dice would be framed instead as incredible foresight. But the humans didn't rest on their laurels. Almost immediately after their success in the first sphere, others started to be built. Wormhole travel was the way of the future, and humanity was eager to see the future bloom. A new galactic era had begun. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 809. Story number one. Why the humans haven't lost. Written by the Maniacal Monocle. You've no doubt read a thousand of these bait articles by now, but you've got to bear with me on this one. In case you haven't been reading my underground reports from their homeworld, the humans are still giving the Imperium hell. Their planet is pretty beat up, even by post-bombardment standards. But these two armed bipeds are tough. I won't give a play-by-play of their physiology. You can read about that somewhere else. I will tell you that these humans have a long cultural history of fighting and resistance. Against whom, I hear you ask, across the vast distance of space against themselves. The humans have been fighting and oppressing each other ever since they discovered this sharpened stick. To summarize nearly 10,000 years of history, they know how to fight impossible odds. Last fall, local season, I witnessed close-upper resistance squad ambush an occupation tank crawler, but available in the media section of the archive. A grouping of a dozen humans had set up an improvised explosives and tangles to interfere with the Imperium's tank's combo, Dread Harbor Movement System. The tank shuddered to a halt and its large guns were helpless against the agile resistance fighters. Like possessed carrions, I saw them dismantle the tank and disappear before the occupation had sounded any alarm. They left the Chiron tank drivers like embarrassed travelers caught unarmed against the trained bandits. You would have completely forgotten that they were a trained tank crew. Something more miraculous happened afterwards. The occupation came in and interrogated nearly everyone in the neighborhood, myself included. From what I could glean, their resistance fighters lived in this neighborhood, but no one sold them out. I saw Chiron interrogators hit the max volume on their vocalizers while person after person refused to name names. A fine show of solidarity at that. But a true marvel was when the occupation interrogated Imperium residents. Not even they cooperated. Just picture it, dear reader, an enforcement squad of Chirons going up to her loitest locals and hearing those short avians tell them, What tech? 
I don't remember any attack happening today. Ancestors bless me for not laughing while it happened. I watched that the Chiron officer turn every visible shade while the whole neighborhood resisted him. From the way his subordinates behaved, this was not the first time a neighborhood had stonewalled them. This display of cross-species solidarity bewildered me at the time. I've since done some digging on more recent historical research. Other less involved reporters will tell you the incomplete history of humanity. They will all end their discussion about a hundred years ago, as if the failed war of pacification is the end of the story. I will gladly tell you that these other authors are amateurs. An eventful century has passed since then, and not a lot of people are writing about it. Resistance movements against the occupation didn't necessarily start so much as they transitioned from the formal war. The main human resistance movements find their origin in the former militaries that fought the Imperium during the war. While the Imperium's fleets withdrew and declared a victory, tenacious pockets of fighters remained and disrupted the leftovers, the occupation. Initially, these resistance movements were outgunned and outmanned. The occupation had access to massive stockpiles of arms and technology. The human race was still playing catch-up in both of those arenas, and catch-up they would. As others would tell you in more detail, the occupation was never reinforced. The Imperium left these companies and battalions of stay-behinds with little to control the planet. Within a decade or so, most, if not all, of the really impressive firepower and tech had been used up or broken down. Without the industry and infrastructure to repair and replace these advanced materials, the resistance slowly gained advantage. To maintain their hold on the planet, the occupation quickly set up an infrastructure to settle down. Yonk birthing facilities were built in human oceans. Chiron spawning pools were set up anywhere humid and hot enough. I've even heard of a couple hiffen nests that are up and running. You walk into a major occupation city, and you'll find human supermarkets mixed with Imperium-style bazaars. Hot cup flakes next to cornflakes. Going local was inevitable. So where does the resistance play into all of this? Integration. The occupation was constantly wary of humans, ghettos developed in many cities. But humans don't have the same Imperium moral codes. Humans don't care if a Chiron wants to be an artist and not a soldier. Humans won't bulk at a Heloitus speaking its mind. Soon, the local Imperium species warmed up to these humans' ideas of a costless living. Now, when the occupation deals with a power outage or a raided weapons depot, the suspects could be anyone. Now the occupation has to enforce its rules on humans and Imperium species alike. 32 standard years after the war was declared won, you start to see reports of local Chirons fighting with human resistance groups. You will not see it in the Imperium space or net feeds, so I have included it here. I have interviewed some of them. This is why the humans aren't beaten. Not yet. The reason they're fighting isn't just to get their homeworld back. Now they have several reasons. Now. They have all the reasons of the Imperium's downtrodden. All the grievances that never get aired on Imperium worlds are being laid bare on the occupation. Earth isn't some war-torn backwater. 
It's the starting point of something new. Something revolutionary. Stay tuned to this net feed and remember to use the privatization blockers. Cast Dan reporting in the field from Earth. End of story. Story number two. Culture Shock. Written by Ice Cream and Wine. The tiny human woman stood in the center of the council room, flanked by her secretary, Carla Ramirez, and her bodyguard, Stonkel. 82 inches of blood, bone, and metal. Humanity has asked for this meeting in order to address the discovery of a proposed course of action that could become very costly to those involved. Forty years ago, when humanity petitioned to join the League of Planets, we were laughed at and subjected to derision. We were informed that in no way were we going to be allowed to become the eighth member of the League. However, you graciously allowed us to become a trading partner only, neither an ally nor a friend. No doubt you saw humanity as no threat, hence our non-admittance to the League. Humanity and the League are both done well from this arrangement. Trade is beneficial to both sides. Having said that, that left humanity free to do as we wished without the approval or censure of the League. The records state that my predecessor told you that you would probably regret the decision to hold humanity at arms, tentacles, paws length in order to retain your control of League space. The time for that regret seems almost to have come to pass, for we have evidence that the League is going to invade the Lacrete system for their resources. There was a general hubbub amongst the League delegates, cries of monstrous lies, well, slander were heard from all sides. The Lorcanar delegate shouted, Prove it! She turned to look at him. The name of your stealth ship that performed the survey on the Lacrete system was the Dranic. We were surprised that you still used it, bearing in mind its involvement in what really happened on Ayanari 3. The Lorcanet delegate's facial features stood straight up and turned grey a sign of extreme shock. It sat down heavily, refusing to look at the other delegates. Bearing in mind that the Lacretes are not even at a level of humanity was when the Zaran invaded Earth thirty years ago. We had no space navy as such, just a few armed freighters and shuttles. I'm sure you all know what happened. We kicked the seven bowels out of the Zanan when they landed captured their tech and repurposed it for ourselves, and in the process, furthered our development by several hundred years, nearly all at once. I invite you to visit Humanity's mission statement from when we contacted you all those years ago. I doubt if you took it seriously back then. Mission Statement If you are our friends or allies, there is practically nothing that we would not do for you. If you are our enemies, there is practically nothing that we would not do to you. Born and bred on the east end of London, Michelle Dubois, humanity's representative, walked forward and drew herself up to a full five feet, one inch, and somehow seemed to dominate the rumor. With the merest breath of French accent, she said, Listen va carefully. I shall say this only once. 
Humanity considers the Decreet to be our friends. Behind her, Carla Ramirez shrugged her shoulders and shook her head sadly and proffered a 50 credit chit to Stronkel, who nodded and stowed it in one of his pockets. I only have one more thing to say, said Michelle. Choose wisely. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 810 Story number one. Ray Animals, written by Destroyotron MK8 Show your belly, soft paw. The virils roar echo through the promenade. Milner's translator helpfully conveyed the meaning. Show you have learned difference, and I might decide not to teach you fear. Milner hustled through the crowd but stopped when he saw his partner moseying forward at a much slower pace. Kalsor had not even bothered to draw her stun whip. Shouldn't we hurry? Mono asked. The Viral's gonna attack. No need, Kalsor burbled. I've been waiting for this. I'm surprised it took so long. Mono's eye stalk swirled towards the gap in the crowd. He could see the Viral now. A male specimen. Large. Its top set of arms were long, heavy with muscle, and spread wide in intimidation gesture. Its smaller arms were bent in front of it, ready to defend. Its feet and all four of its hands were tipped with curved, wicked claws. Its fangs were bent, and its three eyes glared at the two-armed biped. A human. It was of Smilnil feared. The Virils hated humans. They considered them to be prey animals, and the refusal of a prey animal to accept their dominance was an insult that they could not forgive. The Viral Starfang Empire had gone to war over it, and their defeat at the hands of the Terran Federation had only stoked their hatred further. The Virals growled another threat at the human. The human replied, but his voice did not carry far enough for Milner's translator to activate. Both creatures were unarmed. The only weapons allowed on the terminal station were those used by security. Not that he needs one, Molnil thought. The Virils were apex predators. Molnil's stun whip spelt small and ineffectual ladies tendrils. Should we not intervene, Kalsa? He asked his partner. We've already had two human deaths this week. In both cases, the Viril responsible had fled to the ship before security could reach them. Their claw leaders had been heavily fined for their deaths, but that was a poor consolation to the families of the victims. Nor did it act as a deterrent. The claw leaders had purred their pleasure as they paid. Just watch, rookie. Kalsa's voice rippled with amusement. This is gonna be good. The Viral leapt at the human, grasping with a large set of arms. His head shot forward, seeking to crush the man's head in his fangs. Instead of screaming and dying, the human swept an arm under the predator's top arm and made an oddly graceful twisting motion with his legs and torso. The Viral was flung to the ground. Both combatants had moved so swiftly Milner barely had time to flinch. The Viral let out a whiff of air. The human took two steps towards it. As the creatures regained his feet and man made another oddly graceful turning motion. His leg flashed out in an arc, 
coming down and across the predator's face. A yell of pain. Four sets of claws flashed out. The human parried to his side and twisted around the others, striking with his lower appendage a second time. His foot struck just below the roll's knee. A much louder yell, and the creature fell. One leg useless, the creature scrabbled on the ground to reach for the man. The primate skipped back. The Vril followed. The man's arm shot forward, pulling the attacker's arm straight and to the side. The man struck behind the joint with the bottom of his hand, and then there was a sickening crunch. As the Vril screamed and spun, Kalsa remarked, Humans are classified as prey animals. They have no claws or stingers or natural weapons. Their strength and speed are in the middle range for their size group. The human snapped another long arm. We all know how deadly an armed human is, but in places where they can't carry weapons, they are considered helpless. The human's foot arced down with a graceful force, shattering the shoulder joint of the third arm. The Viral's have been taking advantage of this to seek revenge for their wounded pride. The Viral spun itself, flashing out with its remaining leg. What the world do not know is that this is a subset of humans that views physical violence as an art form. The human deftly avoided the claws, wrapped himself around the appendage, and wrenched. Especially unarmed combat. They practice daily for hours on end, honing their violence the way musicians hone the skills of the Quayaga. They believe violence is an art. Molno's voice was barely a whisper. He watched as the human destroyed another joint on the helpless killing machine. He had never seen such brutality. Not just the violence, Kalser explained. They see the preparation for violence as a path to physical fitness and spiritual growth. They love to compete amongst themselves, and they especially relish in fighting other species. Those classed as apex predators are a favorite opponent. The humans considered them the ultimate test of skill. The Viral was howling, crying. He was incapable of fighting back. The human moved along the broken limbs, breaking each remaining joint with methodical precision. Milnil stood forward, gripping his stun whip, but Kalsa stopped him. Wait, she said. The human will tell us when it is time. He'll kill him, Wilnell protested. He won't, she reassured him. If he wanted him dead, he'd have done it already. They watched as the human finished breaking every joint in the Vril's limbs. Milnell wanted to flee, to look away, but he did not. Kalsal stood impassively, and he did not want to disappoint his partner. Why are we not briefed on these humans? Milnell asked. If they are so dangerous. Kalsal made an undulating motion, the Elokan equivalent to a shrug. They don't usually cause problems. Martial artists enjoy competition, but they rarely pick fights. It is considered bad form. Molnil's eyestalk sluttered, signaling confusion. They think it's rude, Kalsar explained. Other martial artists will look down on them for it. When the last toe joint was shattered, the human sat, legs crossed next to the Vril's head. His tone was matter-of-fact. You see humans as soft, weak prey. This is not correct. 
The Vril growled. Before it could speak, the human plucked out one of its eyes. He waited for the beast to stop screaming, then calmly ate the eye in front of him. We are predators, Apex, as you would say. Your people have failed to learn this lesson in war, so now you must learn it in other ways. You'll bear a message to your people. You will be the message to your people. We are not your prey. If you continue to provoke us, you will become ours. The human raised his gaze to meet Kalsor's eye stalks. He stood. Kalsor stepped forward. Milnor moved to back her up, still holding a stun whip. Viral, she said. Identify yourself, please. The Viral attempted to speak. He could not do so properly. His jaw had been dislocated. Milnor's translator compensated. Shukathat, thirdest of the red tooth. I want this human charged with assault. Council turned to the human. Human, identify yourself, please. The human placed his hands together and bent his torso. Molnul's translator interpreted the motion as a bow, a sign of respect. Greetings, officers. I am Kazuma Sato of the Tenral Kenji Dojo. Council turned back to the Viral. The only assault was committed by you, Surakthat. We observed you attempting to kill Mr. Sato. He was within his rights to defend himself. You saw and did not stop, Sirikith growled. Kalsa cut him off. He was within his rights to kill you if you wanted. Kalsa spoke firmly. This is a third murder attempt committed by your species on the station. If there is another, your people will be removed from the herd group. What? Shrikith hissed. You wouldn't dare. The Burl Star Vang Empire has trading rights by treaty. Burning us would be an act of war. It would, Kalsor agreed. He must understand me. We will not ban you from trading at the station. We will simply remove you from the herd group status. You will no longer be under the protection of our security. Milner's translator interpreted what Brill's expression as confusion. Kalsor leaned very close and stared Srukath Eyestalk to eye. We will let the humans hunt you. End of story. Story number two. Humans are delicious. Written by Digital 332006. High Matriarch Hathen watched the humans run on the treadmills. A dozen of them run tirelessly, all to provide for a better meal. She walked up to a fine specimen dragged a single claw down the human male's bare, naked chest, gathering some sweat off of its muscles and licked it. The taste sent shivers down her spine, her whiskers twitching from the salty sweat. She signaled to one of the attendants, telling them that this one was ready. The treadmill slowly came to a crawl, and the attendant escorted the human out of the room into a smaller one where the private customer would pay handsomely to savor the human. She couldn't believe that humans would volunteer for such a thing. She decided to make a business out of it, serving humans to her kind for large sums of money. Once a customer came and tasted a human, they always came back for more, making sure that the customer would be happy with his meal 
She walked over, after a few minutes, into the private booth. The human was laid down on a soft table as the Zentai, a large female predator of a species, was curled over the human. His face hit its chest. Is uh, everything to your satisfaction, miss? Heard the High Matriarch, Hathen. Quite. Thank you. The scent is uh, divine, and the sweat is just perfectly salty, replied the customer, licking the sweat of the human with a coarse tongue. What about you, darling? She asked the human. Oh yeah, this is great. The human petted the Zentai with its hands as it licked the sweat off of him running its fingers through the fur of the large feline. She smiled and left the room. Another satisfied customer and a human that'll come back for more. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 811 Story Double Wonder The Hum of Humans Written by the Wise One 75681 Humans had finally arrived on our ship. It was the first time since the Great War that another species had set foot on the SS Remus. Humans are tiny, standing one half niventh tall. For all the humans reading this, six feet tall, they were puny little creatures. That's exactly why we brought them here. Since the ship was made for us Gexans, our ship seedings towered above the human heads. But the pipes and the ion thruster room does not have enough space for us. So humans were tasked to do regular maintenance on those parts of the ship. At first, I had never noticed them on the ship. They were never with us in the safe room, even in board meetings, due to the fear of being crushed. They had their own section of the ship, which in reality was the size of my washroom. They were always quiet, or I assumed they were, as they were always hiding in their cordoned-off section, nicknamed by my bunkmate, the nursery. But one day, I heard some noise from the nursery. It was a hum that I'd heard as I passed on my way to the cafeteria. I shrugged it off and went on my way, thinking it was just the humans being humans. But again, the next day, as I passed, the human hum was still there. Curious, I knocked on the door. A human with a name tag on his uniform, reading Curtis, walked out. I could hear the noise louder now, but still not loud enough to make out what it was. I asked him what that noise was, and he replied by saying, It's music! I was confused as I had not been briefed about the term before the humans had arrived. But I was busy, so I moved on. Later that day, I searched it up on the ship's database, but it did not give me the origins and specifics of this music. As I was laying in bed that night, I asked my bunkmate what it was. He shrugged and said he did not know. He thought it sounded like a type of food dish, just like our famous dish Nutik. But I told him why would it make a noise? and he again shrugged and said that he did not know. I asked my commander. First he thought I said Pufik, and he gave me a really weird look. I told him that obviously I know what comes out of the other end of ourselves, the hole between our legs. 
I repeated the strange human word to him again, and he said that he did not know. He also said the same thing as my bunkmate, and then suggested looking through the ship's database. But I said I already did that. He then gave me access key for the ship's library of records, and told me not to go through the human book named Hentai. Weird, but I followed his commands. I leafed through the book of the humans called Traditions, but found nothing there. And then went to the book of humans labeled Random, and found nothing again. But I read that humans can get superhuman strength, and lift cars when provoked emotionally or mentally. I made a mental note not to get on the humans' bad side. After all, cars weigh two tons. That's like the weight of my toilet, and I definitely need my toilet. I eventually knocked on the humans' quarters, finally gaining courage. I didn't ask earlier only because their faces are scary, with eyes that bore into the soul, a nose so odd-looking, and a mouth that can open and close to show rows of white teeth, blackened in darkness, except for the pink, flappy object. You'd think that I'd just described a demon. Curtis came out, waved his five-fingered hand, and said hello. The hum wasn't there today. I asked him what music was, and he stared at me blankly, and I thought he didn't comprehend what I had said. After a few awkward moments of me just standing there, waiting for a response, he just went back inside without a word. I thought maybe it was a sentimental or personal thing. I decided not to argue, so I started walking away. But then I heard him call me, so I turned around. He was leaning against the door with some sort of black box on a small prim prick holes. He turned one of the knobs on the box, and it started producing a hum. The same sort of hum that I'd heard before, but much clearer. I listened to it for a few minutes. The hum was high-pitched and sort of uh, electronic, with some other sounds mixed into it. I heard some voices too. Sounded like a human female, but at the same time, not in their regular speaking voice like they changed the pitch of it to sound nicer. To be fair though, I wouldn't argue. Human voices do not sound nice. After about three minutes, the sound changed. It was the same broad hum, but now there was what sounded like a male, and the sound behind was deep and hollow. Curtis told me each change in the sound was a song, a short piece consisting of words and hum, and each song was different. I was fascinated by this music. I loved how it sounded nice and soothing, and made me want to jump up and down and move my body. I asked him how this hum was produced, and he said it's complicated, but the box is called the speaker. Okay then, keep your secrets, human. I borrowed the speaker and showed it to my bunkmate, and he liked it too. He liked it so much that he started wiggling his arms and legs and started spinning. Weird. He's weird anyway. We both then showed it to the commander, and he was awestruck and had a huge grin on his face. He then borrowed the speaker, and later he had a board meeting where he showed everyone the black box, and many people got up and started wiggling and spinning. 
Before the meeting started, everyone was exhausted and glamour, but after the music, moods and spirits were lifted. One crew member suggested we introduce music to the rest of the galaxy somehow, or at least show it to the few species and update our database. All of us were suddenly very determined to complete this. We asked the humans on board if this was possible, and they nodded yes. They suggested hosting a concert, and the humans could provide singers and, uh, rappers, who are the people who talk, or as they call it, sing during each song. After a few technical details, planning with the human leaders back on Earth and planning with the Kexans leaders, we did it. We finally did it. It took a few months eventually, but we planned a concert. And during these months, everyone aboard listened to the music non-stop. And we even installed speckers throughout the ship. And it bled songs every day. So now you've heard how I found out about music. Now it's time for you to find out what it sounds like. Yes, yes you! You're invited to the first music concert dubbed The Hum of the Humans. Everyone is welcome, even humans. Bring your friends, family, boss, or pet. There is no fee. It is scheduled for Woodnestach, 69th Printing Barry. Timing 10.00, Central Universe Time, C.U.T. But please be early, as we expect a big turnout. Limit is a hundred billion beings. Location is on the planet Gexar, located in the Andromeda Galaxy. Parking is available on Gexar's moon, Gax. Performances will be performed by numerous human artists and groups, including, but not limited to, Tyler Swiftfoot. Arena Grande, Ehet Shurin, Veli Eilash, M and M, Snoop Dogg, Kanye West, Gold Plahai, The Weekend, Imagine Dragons, and and Drake. Spread the word. Share this with everyone you know. We hope to see you there. End of story. Story number two. You humans use garbage weapons. Written by Late Print 8646. Jason turned to the clearly drunk and angry alien while sipping his drink. What do you mean? Jason asked after placing his glass on the table. The alien, a seven foot tall, scaly qualian, responded without a moment's hesitation. You humans and your stupid slug throwers belong in the Stone Age, not on the battlefield. You stupid Hannes apes use weapons more fitting of the savages than warp-capable beings, he said. Jason chuckled to himself. Well, us humans and uh, our uh, oh-so-primitive weapons seem to do just fine. Which species was it that wiped out the Nahalian invaders during the defense of Arurid Prime? You fellas? I think not, Jason said with a big smirk. Why do you even use them? One creature, a Gordon Ron, asked, holding four drinks in all four of his arms. Energy weapons exist. You could have made the switch long ago. Most other species who are part of the Alliance did... Slug throwers work just fine, Jason said. You aliens just never truly perfected them. In fact, why not just demonstrate? 
he said, pulling his rifle from behind his back. This is a Colt M36A4 rifle. At this, he pulled the pistol from his holster and put it on the table. Is a Beretta MK-12. Garbage weapons, the Qualian said. These are caseless electrothermal chemical ignition firearms, state-of-the-art, over a thousand years of refinement and advancement. Well, what makes your uh, firearms better than my laser rifle? The Gordon Aron said. Or the Qualian's plasma rifle. Your weapons drain power like starving pigs, Jason said, loading up a mag into his rifle. He continued, My rifle can fire 10,000 shots for the same amount of energy it takes you to fire 100. And, of course, Jason added, nothing in the galaxy will ever compare to this. He pointed his M36 at a nearby outdoor table and blasted away, emptying all the rounds into it. Fracking show-offs! The Qualian said, downing his glass of alcohol. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 812. Story number one. Humanity exports 98% of all of the galaxy's food. This means that no empire can attack them due to reliance. Of course, someone had to try. Written by Barjikuk. Humans were only part of the galactic community for a short period. Due to the technology, it took them an incredibly long amount of time to even reach the other star systems. When they finally reached Proxima Centauri, the Naxapari Empire was already in the process of creating an outpost in the system. Contact was initiated, and soon after, the humans were formally recognized as a part of the galaxy, though heavily subordinated to the Naxapari. Surrounded by the Nexapari occupations and the restricting to the home system of Sol and the nearby Sirius, they were the most irrelevant species imaginable. Even a deeper look into their biology by the Nexapari failed to find anything noteworthy. Their irrelevance and lack of unique characteristics, though, led the Nexapari to grant them far more independence than they otherwise would have been afforded. After all, why spend time and resources to keep an unimportant and useless state in line? So the Nexapari offered them some resources as compensation for the occupation of Proxima Centauri and left the humans on their own. If only they knew. Just a few years later, the humans were already establishing research deals with other species. Though not important on its own, the Nexapari was missed one subtle detail. Humanity's invention of capitalism made them really, really good merchants. Seeing that they have nothing of value to offer the galaxy, the richest and smartest people of Sol and Sirius decided to find a way to gain relevance. And find that they did. The methods humans used to gain relevance were not quite the most ethical. The only thing interesting about those Mammonians was a part of their biology which the Naxapari missed. The existence of a very specific mental illness, not found anywhere else, which humanity wielded as a double-edged sword. After learning the effects of sociopathy and the impassing attacks of synesthesia, scholars from across the known galaxy started squabbling over access to human specimens, aiming to make best use of the weirdly useful traits. 
For their part, humans, lacking most advanced technologies and any other form of relevance, decided that this was their chance to build a stronger position on the galactic stage. They made a series of deals with the Drobogon, Trily, and Stovey, showing the shocking lack of empathy, literally selling their citizens purely based on the traits and with no regard for their consent. Testing entire planets for sociopathy and other illnesses considered potentially useful. In return, they acquired many documents and synapses with specific information about technology used to produce mass quantities of food. Why food? That's where the economic genius of humans came into play. Some clever market researcher allowed them to find out what none of the universe's biggest powers, and almost no smaller ones, invested any significant amount of work into mass-producing food. There simply was no reason to. Enough food to feed the planetary populations was easily obtained through farming on planets, and no more was necessary. Why would it be? But stubborn humans spent centuries developing new technologies out of existing ones, researching food compatible with most of the universe's species, and aiming to find the perfect universal food. And yet their success was due to propaganda. After a careful PR campaign, they managed to convince thousands of millions of species all over the galaxy that eating can be more than a prerequisite for survival. It can be a pleasure. Had it worked, food consumption everywhere throughout the galaxy rose exponentially, and within it, a few states were able to sustain their populations purely through their own resources and stockpiles. And what a surprise. Humans had thousands upon thousands of different types of food, aimed towards everyone, some more luxurious than others. In less than a millennium, human consumerism spread throughout the galaxy. Humanity became main exporter of food and built it into a monopoly, jealously restricting food production technologies to their own exporters and effectively forcing the entirety of the galactic community to buy food from them. They became an economic empire, controlling 98% of the food exports despite only living around two stars, something which could easily become a detriment. Soon enough, it did. The proud Nexapari never fully consented to the rising independence of what used to be a subjugated and worthless state fully within their borders. The government openly opposed consumerism, accusing it of being an attempt to weaken the strength of their people. They openly accused the humans of sabotaging the galaxy, making people and entire worlds less capable of defending themselves from attacks. On the 900th anniversary of the first meeting between the Empire and the humans, the Nexapar reminded humanity of their help to all those years ago, demanding their subjugation as payment. The bottom line was simple. If the humans agreed, they'd lose the advantage that they had built and the Naxapari would take control of the booming economy and amazing technology. If they refused, they'd be destroyed by what still was still the strongest empire in the galaxy. Could they really refuse? Turns out, they could. After shielding themselves with a banal, the Naxapari demands aren't dependent on our decisions. The galactic community refused to intervene, despite the humans begging them to reconsider for seven days. Seven days later, they refused with an open statement and threat issued by the human ambassador. 
The Nexapari have held the galaxy in their clutches for far too long. You've embarrassed our people in barely livable standards, stripped us of all but one solar system within years of our arrival on the international stage, and left us to rot, unable to improve our situation. Meanwhile, your empire swims in riches and abuses our weakness on all fronts. You have no right to lay claims upon our state. If we rose, it wasn't due to your minimal help, but our persistence and abilities, our determination and skill. Therefore, our answer is simple. No, we will keep our sovereignty, and if you plan on taking it away, you'll have to take our lives as well. All over the galaxy, the news of the statement was laughed at in both circles. Nobody had managed to stand up to the Nexapari, and nobody was expecting the Empire of Pavanus to carry any weight. Thinking the same, the Nexapari declared total war, saying that they'll kill every single one of the species of insolent, useless, and overconfident beings. Yet this would soon prove to be ironic. Although it was the Nexapari who declared war, the humans struck first. Within hours of beginning the invasion, something bizarre happened. All the food given to the Nexapari was just, uh, gone. And when the surprised leaders started investigating, they noticed armies of nanobots disguised as perishable food, which were previously undetected. By then, though, it was too late. Millions of Nexapari, tempted by the delicious food, died within minutes the nanobots literally burning their bodies from the inside. Even when they thought the worst was over, they started killing more, unexpectedly. Once the Nexapari died, the bots threw themselves airborne in search of a new host, acting as part of the air and entering another unfortunate body to kill again. It wasn't a war. It wasn't even close. It was a slaughter. The thousands that remained instantly called for a truce, and the galactic community, shocked by the genocide, pushed for it. Humans begrudgingly stopped the nanobots, pointing out that even when the Nexapari planned to commit genocide against them, the galactic community had refused to lift a finger. Despite the protests from the galaxy at large, none could move openly against the humans. As a result, the humans forced a peace deal which completely reversed this situation restricting the Nexapari to two symbolic planets and demanding the vesselization under humanity. The Nexapari had no choice but to agree. In truth, the human ambassador lied. They didn't achieve so much thanks to determination, skill, persistence, nor abilities. What they did have was an unbelievable level of cold reasoning and ruthlessness achievable only with enough secrecy to keep their true intent secret for as long as necessary. And as such, nobody can challenge us again. End of story. Story number two. What scares humans? Written by Lane Miller. Captain Dell watched the bridge crew from the corner of their optics. They knew what was causing this. Many of the crew were anxious, breaking out about the scuttlebutt that was making the rounds around every gossip monger in the crowd. There was a new human joining the crew in the next lunar cycle. There had been a single human on the crew before, and they had learned much about the curious species and also solidified many rumors that accompanied them. 
descendant from the pursuit predators, Will had been able to work for cycles at a time during an emergency. He was aggressively talkative, always dressed in bright colors, and would bare his teeth as a sign of friendship. It disturbed many of the crew at first, Dalnir. But Will's social tendencies and hard work broke the ice soon, and many of the aliens that he worked with were soon friendly. It helped that the human was always open to answering any questions the crew had, always ready to jump in if someone needed a claw, and was frequently found humming pleasantly while he worked. Plus, having another omnivore on the ship had been nice. Dell had been able to share many of the dishes from their home planet. Although Will usually added some earth sauce, which Dell knew contained capsaicin and acid. But Will had not stayed forever, moving on to another job after a while. But that was the way of the fleet. As soon as a good thing was finally put together, they reformatted. Dell had also lost one of the best pilots and four security officers as well. Still, one of the things they had learned from Will was that there was a very few things that humans shrink from. But there was one thing that they all feared. He had talked of it many times as he replayed his experiences as a young human working in shops before coming to space. Dal looked down at the pad, the dreaded thing that Will had described as the most vicious and bloodthirsty of his species right in front of his eye stalks. The new human was named Karen. Will had described the dangerous creature as it demanded a manager many times. Would the crew survive? End of story. Tales from Outer Space 813. Story number one. We Surrender, written by Ice Cream and Wine. The Dreadnought, the Creator's Power, emerged from fault space above Marek Three and hung in space over the planet. Damage report, queried Captain Carmock. Very little damage, sir, replied the ship's engineering tech. That's good to hear, said Carmock. Run diagnostics anyway. Already in progress, sir, said one of the tech at the engineering station. What about the other ships, inquired Carmock. The reports are coming in now, sir, said the comms tech. Most are undamaged. The Adal's arrow reports a misaligned thruster array. But it's not serious. An hour at most. Fault space is tricky, isn't it? Said Korak, the ship's exo. Thankfully, we seem to have gotten away with it this time. It's a trade-off that I don't like, said Carmack. We get to where we want to go fast enough, but at the cost of possibly severe damage. Still, there doesn't, as yet, seem to be another way to do it. As in all things, we work with what we have, said Korak. Indeed, said Carmack. Now contact the plat Unknown ship. Who are you and what is your purpose here? Grated a metallic sounding voice. After a few seconds of confusion. Where is that coming from? Asked Cormac. The Megrican don't have AI or computer technology. It's not coming from the planet, said the comms tech. Sensors can't pinpoint the location. It's coming from everywhere and nowhere at the same time. Unknown ship. Who are you and what is your purpose here? Grated the voice again. More urgent this time, it seemed. You can't locate the source, said Carmack. That's ridiculous. It has to be coming from somewhere. Nowhere we can pinpoint, sir. The sensors just can't find it. 
Ah, uh, well, time to introduce ourselves, I suppose, said Carmack. This is the Breatus Power and sundry other ships, and we are here for the American tribute. Ah, Captain Carmack, said a furry American appearing on the view screen. What? How do you know my name? And how did you contact us just now? We didn't contact you until this moment. And as to knowing who you are, in the 200 years since the last collection of tribute, a lot of things have changed, said the furry creature. You are a simple agrarian world, said Cormac. How are you communicating with us since you don't have the technology to do so? As I said, things have changed, and I fear that, uh, for you, not for the better, said the furry one. I will deal with this when we land, snarled Cormac. And you will explain yourself to my satisfaction, or you will have to deal with the consequences. Permission to land denied, said the furry being. Permission denied? Are you mad? said Charmack. How are you going to stop us from landing, you backwater fool? At the risk of repeating myself for a third time, things have changed and you will not be allowed to land, said the furry one. Make Bladderfall next to what passes for the main city, said Carmack. It seems a lesson needs to be taught. Sir, the engines are not functioning, shouted the engineering tack. Everything is in the green, but they just won't work. Sensor malfunctions, said Carmack. All ships report the same problem, sir. They should work, but they just don't. As I said, the furry creature, permission to land denied. How are you doing this? screamed Carmack. You aren't able to do this. You don't even have basic machines or computer technology. We do now, said the furry one. A gift from our conquerors. Conquerors? What are you babbling about? said Carmack. A hundred and thirty years ago, we declared war, said the furry creature. Declared war? What with? laughed Carmack. You only had simple farming tools. You had no weapons, no spaceships, nothing of any significance. That was true, said the very figure, and that was the reason we surrendered ten seconds after we declared war on the Terrans. The Terrans? Who are the Terrans? said Carmack. Allow us to introduce ourselves, said the metallic voice from earlier. What have you got? said Carmack to the sensor tech. Absolutely nothing, said the tech. There's absolutely nothing out there. Sir, sir, shouted the tech. Look at the digital camera feed of the observation deck. What? The observation deck? What are you talking about? said Carmack. It's on your viewer now, sir, said the tech. Carmack gabbed disbelievingly at his screen. It showed a ship. A ship wreathed in what looked like an oscillating bands of fire and electricity. A ship of sharp angles and predatory looks. You can't have fire in open space, thought Carmack. Scan it, he barked at the tack. It's not there, sir, said the tack. It just doesn't register on our scans. Where did it come from and how big is it? gasped Cormac. It's not scannable, sir, said the tack. We can't scan the ship, but we can scan the hole in space it made when it appeared, said the engineering tack. There is no such thing as a hole in space, said Carmack desperately reaching for a sense of normalcy. Up until five seconds ago, I would have agreed with you, said the tech. Now, not so much. The hole in space is closing slowly. Slowly enough for us to take readings. 
said the engineering tech. How big is it? said Carmack. If that ship is made of the same materials our ships are made of, it's big enough to outmast the fleet by several orders of magnitude, said the tech. One ship, said Carmack. They may be more, but this is the only one we can see, said the tech. More than one, thought Carmack dazedly. The furry one appeared on the screen again. The tribute treaty is hereby cancelled. You and your ships are no longer welcome here. Not that they were ever welcome, he stated. The treaty was signed in perpetuity, snarled Carmack. A treaty signed under duress becomes valueless when you have bigger weapons than what was used on you to sign the treaty in the first place, said the furry one. Sir, sir, shouted the tech, the ship can now be scanned. Scan it then, shouted Carmack. We can get no readings other than the actual size, said the tech. It's colossal. It outmasses the fleet by more than what we thought. Carmack looked at the display. The ship looked even more predatory than before, and it chilled his blood to look at it. Deep in his head, he desperately wanted to be somewhere else. Anywhere else. As has been explained to you, your presence here is no longer required, now or in the future. I suggest that you be on your way, said the voice. You can't dismiss us just like that, shouted Carmack. We are representatives of the Gazarok Empire. An empire shmempire, said the voice. Be gone and don't bother the Marikian again. And be thankful that we don't want back what you've taken from them. We, however, are not as amenable as they are. And you don't want to find out just how unamendable that we can be. But, but, stated Carmack. The ship shuddered violently, throwing the bridge into chaos. Sir, they just fired an unknown type of energy beam close to us. They meant to miss else we wouldn't be here, shouted the tech. The beam was wider than our ship, sir. Carmack was no coward, but he understood the old adage, in over your head. He gave the order to re-enter fault space, all the while wondering how he could explain this whole thing when he got home. End of story. Story number two. Economies of Scale, written by Byronic Biotic Man. The Abraxas 75992 system was missing. At first, the warning on the long-range mass scanners was dismissed as a system error. K-Dwarf systems do not vanish completely off the mass scanners. A detonation might spread the mass around, but it would still be there. It wasn't until an automated freighter a dozen light-years away reported a course error due to the local gravity maps being wrong that the scanner readings were double and triple checked and a recon probe dispatched. The outer circumstellar disks were still there and started to lose central cohesion, but the star, the planets, and everything else in the primary gravity well wasn't. This, of course, raised quite a few alarms within several different galactic agencies. Traffic control for the region issued immediate updates. Star charts had to be updated to account for the changing gravity of the region and stellar drift forecasts. 612 sublight trajectories would have to be corrected or collected because the objects that they were on course for wouldn't be there when they arrived. 
Defense and intelligence agencies immediately began searching for what could cause a star system to just go missing. Several cults popped up that week as the news broke. All centered around the belief that the entity that could eat stars had arrived. Two months later, Abraxas 75992 reappeared 76,000 light years spineward and half a light year from the system containing the Trexan Holy Citadel. Thousands of defensive ships were scrambled and sent out to see what had happened and what dread omens this could pretend. There was no Star Eater. There was no Dread Fleet. There was nothing but a series of translation relays aligned along the system's gravity axis and a human-built research station linked to all of them. Only the incredulity of the Trexan Conclave over the situation prevented them from destroying the station and the relays out of hand. Um, it looks like we miscalculated, the lead researcher said when questioned over what was going on. We meant to drop the system 30,000 light years the other way. Nobody was using the system, and we figured it would be easier to move it to our mining station than hold the ships there and back. Economies of scale, you know. Um, yeah, I think we got it this time. And before the Traxon could get their grippers on the ship's controls, Abraxas 75992 vanished once more. End of story. And that, my friends, is the end of this episode of this weekly Tales from Outer Space. I hope that you enjoyed. If you wish to support the channel, there are ways down below. If you wish to support the authors mentioned in these stories, there are links there, too. I will see you all next week, and until then, I hope that you have a fantastic one. Cheers.